what's going on? Welcome to Canal and Bell and sometimes Sampson. Our guy, David Sampson, is going to help us with trade uh, the MLB trade deadline. is tomorrow at 4 o'clock. We've already seen a little bit of action. We're going to get to that. Barrett Salee is going to join us as well to some college football. The second half of the show It's going to always be entertaining when we do some college football. Before we get to the baseball, right there at this hour, we read about a lawsuit that's taking place in New Orleans. You you and I kind of looked at each other. I almost like, laughed huh? audibly. Well, and this this attorney has filed charges, but it's kind of it's taken the next step, right? Like it hasn't just been dismissed. Where Roger Goodell and three of the officials in the game could have to potentially be subpoenaed, you know what it answer took questions to get Bud Selig to testify at the steroid hearings. <laughs> it, it, I would call it an act of Congress because it literally was an act of Congress. Right? right? They, they were forced to do right. this. The fact that right now in the NFL offices. They're looking at this lawsuit, and Roger Goodell, he's got stuff to do. Yeah. They've got a business to run. They've got games to actually play, a regular season to have. We're talking about holdouts and lawsuits over a non-call last year. I, I can only imagine. It's a joke. This person should have no right to sue, and if he loses, he should have – you should be penalized like the British system. Yeah, when I hear that take place, when I hear, oh, it's an attorney who's suing, all I'm thinking is this guy's trying to make a name for himself in the New Orleans area, trying to increase his business. This, you know, he says he's going to donate the damage, uh, the $75,000 if he won. He's just doing it for his brand to try to increase his awareness. Shakespeare kind of, was right, Danny. But you know what? New Orleans has bought into all of it. They're like, yeah, let's get him out there. Let's have him testify. It is kind of stupid. GOI, right? As Bad a player, happened, don't yeah. you have to GOI when something goes? Yes. Yes. Get over it. Every time. Get over it. That's what they have to do. Because I, the, the expectations are high for the Saints this year. I worry they're still like sometimes you can use adversity to motivate you and it propels you. I still feel like it's just it's, so there's it's there's something they're hanging on to. I don't think let Drew Brees go. will let him do that. I hope not. I really and don't. I hope not. Too experienced. I would hope so too. Uh, as well as Sean Payton, their head coach. We'll have to see as that plays out. Um, the Major League Baseball trade deadline is tomorrow. Uh, there have been some moves made by some teams that were a little bit surprising. Interesting moves. The Mets specifically, last time I talked to you was last week, and it was, hey, Noah Syndergaard is off the table for the Yankees. They would listen to everybody else. And it was a move that caught most of Major League Baseball by storm when they made the move to acquire Marcus Stroman. What was your reaction when you saw that? I thought it was a CBS Sports HQ typo, and then I realized <laughs> we don't do that. Right. We're perfect That's right. with our graphics. So it said Mets. I got the alert from CBS. I was shocked. Right. So all the great MLB insiders, everyone who's speaking to everyone saying, oh, they saw this coming. No one saw it coming because what's Brody Van Wagenen doing? Marcus Stroman was so angry about this trade that he lost his mind when told about it in the clubhouse. Really? He threw a major tantrum. We talked about it earlier on the queue. He threw an actual tantrum. Was it, and it was specifically because it was the Mets or because he was traded? So like he's CYA right now and saying, oh, I love the Mets. I'm happy to be going there. And they're a great team, and I can't wait to win. I was upset with the Blue Jays' front office for their communication or lack therein of. He's actually upset that he's going to the Mets. And we'll talk more about that as the day continues on HQ. I just find it interesting. They trade Vargas to the Phillies, right? Mm -hmm. So they save money on Vargas. Vargas is a serviceable guy whose numbers, if you dig in, Danny, are just as good as Stroman. But Vargas is a free agent at the end of the year. Stroman has an extra year. What are the Mets doing? People are saying they're cornering the market now on starting pitchers, where if they move Syndergaard and Wheeler, they can control the market. So teams like the Diamondbacks, who have Robbie Ray, or the Rangers, who have Mike Miner, have to wait for the Mets to act. I think it makes the deadline boring and horrible when teams have to wait on another team. So is there anything to it? 
Because if you look at the big names that we talked about, for as far as there are there are some teams, the Yankees among them, the Astros expressed interest in getting a, a starter for their rotation. Um, and the market, the names that I've heard leading up to that were Noah Syndergaard, we mm-hmm. just talked about, Madison Bumgarner, and Marcus Stroman. Madison Bumgarner, it looks like the Giants might hang on to him and make that mistake of trying to capitalize on momentum. So he's, let's assume he's off the market, right? Okay. Um, you got Syndergaard, who you own. Now you own two out of the three biggest names in that market. Is there any chance they flip these guys because now they have more leverage because they hold so many of the pieces? They won't flip Stroman. What I because they they actually want him on their in the rotation next year. And Zach Wheeler then does he become expendable? Me, Zach Wheeler has to be traded. He's a free agent at the end of the year. There's something called a, a um, qualifying offer in baseball where you offer a free agent to be a one year contract, let's say at eighteen million dollars, and if the player turns it down, you get a draft pick once he signs. What we learned is, like Dallas Keuchel, Craig Kimbrell, some guys get left out of free agency. Zach Wheeler is a very interesting candidate to be left out of free agency because he may want more than the market can bear. He's not a young kid anymore, and he may be looking for four years, five years, 20-plus a year. He's just not going to get it, not worth it. So the Mets have to try to get that asset moved and get some young players back into their system. But we're assuming they know what they're doing, and that's an assumption that, frankly, I'm tired of making. Please don't laugh at me for asking this question. Is there any chance that they're making these moves to try to make a run to make the playoffs in this latter portion of the season? Like, that would be... A really dumb mistake, wouldn't it? Like, is there any, like, you're not laughing, but you might be doing something even more insulting with that look that you have on your face. Oh, no. But I, I mean, was, do you but, know what I was just doing? <laughs> what? I was totally laughing. Okay. Because it's totally possible you're <laughs> right. But wouldn't that be with the most idiotic thing you could do? I've done it. <laughs> really? I have deluded myself into thinking at the deadline that we need to be buyers because we have a chance to climb over seven teams because we're only five games back. The Mets right now are six games back. I always said, hey, if I'm within five games, September 1, I'm sending out playoff invoices. We have a shot at this. We're one nine one streak away from passing these teams. We've got teams in our division we can catch. I, I get it. I've done it. I, I understand for 18 years you run a team, you want a ring, you want another ring once you get one. The Wilpons of, you know, 86 was the last championship. They, they've done nothing. They were in the World Series in 15. This vaunted rotation has not panned out with any sort of postseason success. So I get why the Mets would be delusional because delusion normally starts at the top. Well, I mean, I think it would be so comical if everybody thinks they're going to do these certain things, thinks Syndergaard's on the market, but they're inter- and internally, they're thinking, oh, that our schedule's lighter in the back half. We can make this run. All we need is a couple it. pieces. Danny, yeah. we, I've gone through right. an 80-game schedule halfway through the season, and I've told our manager, GM, and owner, here's every game we have left the entire season, and here's what we have to do in each series. I did it with Jack McKean in 03. Yep. And we ended up predicting correctly that we'd win 91 games. And you got it. And we got 91 games and then a ring. But each year I would do it. 03 was the only year I got it right. (laughs) Right. Because when you were supposed to win two out of three and you lose two out of three, then you're a game behind and you say, okay, we were supposed to win two out of three the next series. Now we have to sweep just to catch up and you lose control. The Mets are going to lose control and uh, I hope they make the moves. I'm staying awake until 4 p.m. tomorrow. Yep. I'm not just, going to bed. Just staying awake well, the whole time. That's a normal Tuesday for me, but <laughs> I am, right. I'm staying awake to watch these moves. One of the things, if they did this and kept everybody intact, 
is the situation with Noah Syndergaard because it's come a little bit awkward as he's heard all the rumors and especially in that market, it's, you know, the back pages of the post and the daily news. They're there. There's a lot of speculation. He's getting asked about it. He's taken to social media, which I never think is a good idea to do it. It's got over a million followers and he's saying, you know, Hey, don't ask me or get ready for this to happen. You know, something's about to happen. Um, if you were the Mets, do you? Ignore it? Do you talk no. to him? Are you open with him? You have to talk to him. You do? Not many front offices do this, and I did it all the time, and I actually would have arguments with my GMs over this. And I worked with three GMs my whole career, Jim Beatty, Larry Beinfest, uh, and Mike Hill, and Dan Jennings as well, before we made a manager, one of my great moves. But, um, <laughs> I, you know, you've got to communicate with players. It's okay to tell them, yeah, we're looking to move you, but here's what we need to get. If we don't get it, we're not going to move you. We're trying to get better for now and the future. Noah can say, hey, I want to move. I don't want to move. And I would say to the player, I'm just telling you right now, A.J. Ramos is a great example. When we traded him midseason a couple of years ago, I, I told him two weeks in advance. I said, hey, you know, we're moving you. We're not in this race. You couldn't be moved. You're wanted by a contender. We ended up trading him to the Mets, interestingly <laughs> enough. Yeah. Not a contender. And it was another, they just overpaid and we were happy with that trade. But A.J. was appreciative that we were honest with him. Did you ever have a player give you an attitude or say, please don't? Or, you know, like, cause. Uh, Cliff Floyd, one of the first trades I ever made with the Marlins claims, and I've spoken to him a hundred times since then, and he's a big guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. He claims that he, we never told him he was being traded in one of the great crazy trades of all time in 2002 that helped us get Juan Pierre and helped us get a World Series. But Cliff Floyd went public that we were mean, bad owners coming from Montreal and we didn't communicate with him and he had to read about it back then. There was no... Right, right, social media. Yeah. Right, you read about it sort of in the paper, but Cliff Floyd knew. (laughs) I love it. Cliff Floyd's a good dude, right? Very good. Yeah, he's a great dude. The broadcaster does some stuff uh, there as well. Um, The Yankees, Brian Cashman, a lot of speculation. They're in the move for that starter uh, to add to their rotation. Their starting rotation has some of the worst stats. When you look at ERA, home runs allowed since the All-Star break. It's been atrocious how bad they are. And yet, they've been pretty quiet, or at least what Brian Cashman is leading on, is they're not in a desperate position. Do you think they make that big, splashy move to bring in somebody that adds that piece to the starting rotation? They better, because here's what Brian Cashman is doing every morning. He's spritzing cologne on himself because he reeks of desperation. (laughs) And he's trying to cover it up because he doesn't want to have to overpay. What's the use of having prospects? Another thing we talk about all day long here, both on the air and off the air, I don't want to win the best farm system. That doesn't excite me or my fans. I want to win rings. And Cashman hasn't gotten a ring in 10 years. If you've got to trade your number one prospect to get Noah Syndergaard or to get a top flight pitcher, you do it. That's the purpose of it. They've got enough young players. They've got a bunch of other big time players under contract, you know, in that outfield with Judge and Stanton. That's who you're married to. They just signed Aaron Hicks. They've got young pitching. They've got Herman, who they love. If you've got to move someone great to get someone greater for now, and you're the Yankees, you got to do it. Because they can outslug some opponents, but in a playoff situation, especially against the Astros, going against their staff, I mean, you've got to have somebody. Because even your bats, uh, your savages, as Aaron Boone likes to call them, when they're facing the likes of a Justin Verlander, it's going to be much tougher to get those bombs. And if you, and especially if you catch them on a good night. You've got to be able to hold the other team to at least a respectable run total no or else you're going to get bounced again. And then it becomes, hey, how long has this drought been for a World Series for the New York Yankees? The Yankees shouldn't be focusing on their eight and a half game lead. What they should be focusing on is what's going to happen in October. We've said it here exclusively, not just on the canal 
and Bell show, but all throughout HQ, the Yankees are built to get to October, not through October, and they've got to change that narrative. The Astros, if they acquire a good starting pitcher, that's a mic drop for that team. Yeah, Their lineup is deeper than the Yankees. If they get a, another starter to go behind Verlander, behind Cole in the three-hole, and then they actually enhance their bullpen, that's what I would do if I were them. Don't get a bat. Try to get a sort of a, a middle-inning uh, bullpen guy and then a starter like a Robbie Ray. Can you imagine Robbie Ray in a three-game series oh, as your man. third starter? Mike Miner's an interesting one for that team as well. I just love what the the Astros could end the American League race. Yeah, they absolutely could. Uh, there have been some reports that general managers across Major League Baseball have discussed pushing the trade deadline back from July 31st, just two weeks to August 15th, um, to give them more time to figure it out. I mean, they're basically they're trying to save their own tails. Because a lot of them have made mistakes, probably historically, making the wrong decision. Uh, would you be in favor of pushing it back? Is it better for baseball or keep it where it is? Keep it where it is. Do you know what trade deadlines are? They are New York City closet space, right? <laughs> you use whatever you have always. If you move to a bigger place that has two more closets and you think, oh, my God, I'm going to have extra space, you don't. You fill it up. If the deadline went till the 15th, you'd then say, hey, we got to go to the end of August because – there's 15 teams in the race. We're around 500. We're four games back. Should we buy? Should we sell? I don't know. It's good right now. I don't want to put the deadline so close to the NFL season and so close to sort of exhibition as they're ramping up. I want it right now because this is training camps are just starting. Their NBA free agency is over. This is baseball's moment. And we lose the moment after this basically until you know, September 15th. Yeah. So right now, and then we get October, obviously. So I want to keep the deadline as is. GMs are just being a little lazy in that regard. Yeah. And hopefully Rob Manfred and the GMs all take this into consideration when sometimes I think the, uh, they don't consider the big picture, uh, of the landscape of sports with like their hall of fame ceremony to have that on a game on a day when there are games taking place made no sense to me. That's a whole nother topic. <laughs> All right, we have the trade. Aja, where are you? <laughs> Get him back. Uh, we have the trade deadline, uh, fast approaching us. So there are going to be teams. Some of them will make moves they shouldn't. Some of them won't make any moves whatsoever. Let me start it off with what team won't make a move, but they should. These are two tough questions that we've been pondering all night. And I'm going to go right now with the St. Louis Cardinals because of how well I know John Moseliak, who they're president of baseball operations. And he's tied for first place right now. He's got a chance to get his team back in the postseason for the first time in several years. He signed Goldschmidt to that huge extension before he had played a game. He traded with the Marlins to get Marcelo Zuna last offseason. He's more of an offseason guy. But they lost Jordan Hicks. They need help in the bullpen. They actually could use another starter. I'd like to see them do something, take on money. But he's got to convince Bill DeWitt, the owner, to take on money. And then he's got to convince himself that it's okay to trade young guys. Two things that he does not like doing. And we have him as tied for second in the wild card spot. But he's also tied with the division lead in the three-team race that we predicted. Brewers, Cardinals, Cubs going to the end. All three of them are unlikely to make the playoffs. So the Cardinals, to me, should make a move. I just don't think they will. Some of those things, too, it's like in their DNA, right? Like they're a team that doesn't want to typically make those types of moves. You said Very unemotional. Which... 
it can be good at sometimes, but at sometimes it can be your detriment that you kind of get stuck in your ways, so to speak. We'll but see. I, maybe this will get. Maybe they're yeah. watching HQ. That's what you do. With the deadline. <laughs> That's right. No, listen. We're, yeah. We had every channel on during the deadline. We're trying to get rumors from everywhere. We're planting rumors everywhere. We've got donuts and bagels <laughs> and pizza. We've got people coming in with drinks and Red Bull and and Coke and everything else. And we're trying to figure out what we're going to do. So this may be this show. Canal and Bell. Yep, and sometimes Samson. This may be why the Cardinals do something. All right, hopefully they're paying attention. All right, what team makes a move that shouldn't? Well, the moves I mean, <laughs> already have taken place. It's too easy, right? Yeah. It's too easy. The moves the Mets have made. What I just I keep talking about them because I don't think our listeners and viewers are getting bored because so many of them want to love the Mets and hate themselves because they're stopping that love. It's like they're protesting. They don't go to games. They're not watching games because what is the plan? And what I want a team to do one time, take the microphone and tell your fans what you're doing and why you're doing it. Just do it. Don't do it with a quote. Don't do it with a soundbite. Actually have a press conference where you explain to your fans, hey, this is our plan and this is how we're executing it. That's what Brody should be doing, but he's too busy tweeting. <laughs> yes, he is uh, out there. And the Nets have one of those pieces. Um, that have been one of the bigger names that have been speculated could be moved in Noah Syndergaard. We've also got Madison Bumgarner's been speculation. They already acquired Marcus Stroman. But you've got another player that might be a little bit off the radar. I know he's been come up in a lot of conversations, but that might have an even bigger impact than any of those guys. So Will Smith is someone I want to talk about. And if you like baseball, you're watching the San Francisco Giants. This is their closer. He is lights out, and he could be used by... I'd say five teams off the top of my head. The Yankees could end up bolstering their bullpen with someone like Will Smith. He could go to the Braves and really help them if they get a starter. The Nationals are desperate for bullpen help. Why not swallow hard if you're not going to trade Baumgartner and you want to give Bruce Bochy a soft landing for his last season? Compromise. Trade Will Smith. He's at the height. He will never be worth more. You lost that opportunity with Baumgartner. You've got an aging roster. Take Will Smith right now. Get some players. That's my prediction. Um, it'll be interesting to do that. If you were the Giants and you were going to go to your fan base and you were going to deal Madison Baumgartner, what would your message be to the team? Because that's going to be a really depressing message. No, for no, it's depressing. Here's the first thing I do. I've got three fingers up, and I'm wearing all three of the World Series rings we got with these players. So I'm going to wear them all. So it's not like <laughs> yes. we haven't done well. Then I'm going to say, we are not the Los Angeles Lakers. We will not keep Kobe Bryant a year too long and sign him to a deal that's not worth it and then be uncompetitive until we get LeBron four years later, however many years. Right. We're not going to do that. We are going to try to get you the next dynasty as quickly as possible to do it. We're going to name a street after Madison Baumgartner. We're going to put him in our Hall of Fame. But we got to move him right now. Tough message to sell. Three rings. You, right. Three rings. Right. Sometimes you have to take a little bit of pain for a long-term reward. What and pain it's not even they had emotional. No, but it would be an emotional loss for them to get over with because they're it the meant so much to that decade, organization. Danny, I, and that's the problem is they're trying to recapture it. They had it. Yep. They did it. They were the team. Three rings. Yeah. Pretty been pretty impressive run. Hopefully they don't get caught up in the emotion of that one. It'll be interesting to see. All right, welcome back to Canel and Bell. Time for some college football with our guy Barrett Salee joining us now in person, in, in studio. Person, right, I get to, awesome. get to hang out you, with you in these 
lovely confines. It's right? like Chip and Joe did yeah. design this backdrop over here. Exactly. Chiplap. Palatial Days. studio that we right. have. <laughs> yes. right. Chip and Joe. I like that reference right there. Uh, my wife is a huge fan of the show, so we see it all the time. <laughs> you my too. kids Come even on, you watch can say it. it. You are too. Every once in a while, Chip's a little cheesy. He is he's cheesy. a little over the top, but it's kind of, I don't think it's phony. I think he's just cheesy in yeah, life. He's just that kind of guy. He's got the dad jokes galore, like going right. all the time. Um, the last thing I saw from you was, and you just, I'm glad you reminded me of it because you, you were at SEC Media Days right. and it was in Hoover, right? It, it was, was in back Hoover. in Hoover. Um, and you, it's become a thing now, this karaoke night. That's right. Like it's epic. Like it's there's, right. Is it, how long has this been going on? So about 10 years ago, me and a couple of buddies, I live in Atlanta and they work at uh, 680 The Fan. We were sick of, of going to the same sports bar <laughs> right around the mall. And so we stumbled across the street and we found this place called Gabriel's, which is where Michael Jordan actually played pool and gambled when he was with the Birmingham Barons. Really? So it's the diviest dive bar <laughs> that you'll ever see. You can smoke it. I don't smoke, but you can smoke in there. It's just, so it became kind of our like hidden treasure of Hoover. And so for 10 years, we've been slowly and surely g- gathering more people to come with us. So two years ago, before, you know, two years ago was the last time it was in Hoover before this year. We had about like 75 media guys will remain nameless who was up there singing <laughs> what songs because some of them were very inappropriate. Yeah. Um, and so it's just sort of become a tradition. And it, it I, I had a less miles heartfelt because like the, the bartender is also the owner. She's like a 55 year old lady, super sweet. She, I got my check and she goes, she kind of grabbed me and pulled me in. She was like, I just want to thank you for all that you've done for the last 10 years. It means a lot to me. And if this is the last time you come to Hoover, I'm going to remember you. And I was like, oh, oh my God. <laughs> really? My, my girl, she knows us. She loves us. See, it just, yeah. it just means it's all more. about relationships, it right? Just it just means, means more, <laughs> especially in uh, Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, let's start there. SEC. Um, Bama. Heavy favorite. There is a lot of talk about George. It's one of the things that drives me nuts is we're already talking two teams in the playoff from that conference. <laughs> um, but who is the team in the SEC West specifically? A lot of people are high on LSU. They're bringing in this, you know, passing game guru <laughs> and Joe Brady to help gonna Joe do it Burrow. this year. They're yeah. going to do it. This you're, is finally it. But you're not buying into LSU as the next biggest threat. To no, them. I've been down on LSU for a while, pretty much every offseason, because of this exact reason. Every single year, they have this idea that they're going to open up the offense, and it never, ever happens. And the fact that they're talking about it again this offseason tells me, anyway, they feel like it's a problem again. Even though they went to the Fiesta Bowl, clearly it's a problem. So, you know, Joe Brady from the Saints, that's great, but Ed Orgeron wants to do Ed Orgeron, right? Like, he wants to play ball control off, uh, offense. He wants to, to, to win the time of possession game, and that doesn't work, you know, because you're not going to win playing that kind of football every single week you might have a great defense Michigan is a perfect example too you're gonna win nine or ten games because you can play defense but when games get sideways you have no chance and so I don't think they're gonna do it this year I think for LSU you know I will believe it when I see it I think Texas Texas A&M finished second in the west last year Mm -hmm. right so it's like people are talking about how Texas A&M's on the come up and they're the ones to keep an eye on but you know let's let's not give them too much too quick they finished second in the west right like too much too quick would be if they beat Alabama this year so uh, Texas A&M schedule obviously is is extremely tough but uh, Kellen Mond, when they played Clemson last year, the best quarterback on the field, and that field had Trevor Lawrence and Kelly Bryant on it. And that was Kellen Mond's second wait, 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 year. I don't know if I'd go that on far. That day, on yes, that but tre- day. But Trevor Lawrence didn't get to play the entire game. And he was awful. He was worse right. than Kelly Bryant. It's his first real big-time sure, playing Sure, but, Ke- but Kellen Mond against that defense 
balled out, and that was his second game with Jimbo Fisher. Mm -hmm. And so you put him in a, in a system with Jimbo Fisher for another year with one of the best wide receiving cores in the country. Yes, I know Alabama's better, but Texas A&M has that. And another year, Mike Elko as their defensive coordinator. Texas A&M's by far the biggest threat. Texas A&M was the biggest threat last year, and there's nothing to suggest that they will regress. There's a lot to suggest that they will take a couple steps forward. So, um, is, is that, is that, is that step forward gonna be worse than LSU's? No. So if it's not, then you have to say Texas A&M is the biggest threat because LSU, you have to see it first. I kind of like the value on that 30 to 1 odds to win that. Mm -hmm. It's tough to find yes. value many places, and I would like it from that standpoint. Um, it's going to be an interesting situation because I saw their Vegas win total. I think it's at 8.5. Yeah. Um, this is a program that ran off Kevin Sumlin because they For were around wins. nine and eight wins every single year, yeah. and they paid Jimbo seventy-five million. Sure. He was eight and four in the regular season last year. Um, if he doesn't get to that level, is it still the hunt? Like, let's say they go back and they they have another eight and four season, mm -hmm. even nine and three. Sure, is that enough to appease that fan base, or is it still going to be the honeymoon period? We're headed in the right direction. Well, it, not to dodge the question, it sort of depends on how that looks. Yeah. So let's just say it's 9-3, and three and they play Georgia, Alabama, and Clemson really, really close. Then that's that's progress. I mean, the record might but not show it. Didn't someone do those things? Right, he but, played some teams pretty tight. Right, win. but it, with that schedule, if you get to that point where you're, you're beating LSU again, which I think they will, and you give Clemson, Georgia, and Alabama all that they want, even, even more so than you you did last year then that's a step forward even though from a record standpoint it might not show it because you still can sit there and say all right look you know the offense is working the recruiting has has definitely you know taken a step forward and you know i just think the the biggest thing is that you have to be consistent you can't have that slip up you can't just you know have these ups and downs and and they really didn't have that last year and i don't think they'll have it this year so the, the schedule i think is what's working against them but it also is what's working for them because if texas a&m fans see 9 and 3 but a really really solid 9 and 3 then that then that investment's going to be worth it because i don't think you can sit there and say all right look this is a 10 year plan but it has to happen sooner rather than later because this is a contract that I think exists because Nick Saban won't exist on the back end of it. And so if you can get to the point where in the back end of Jimbo's contract, you know, Nick Saban's not at Alabama, then you're gonna win, you're gonna win a lot of SEC West championships. Then it's a complete game changer when Nick Saban steps down. Uh, Coca just got me the Westgate number for Texas and M, seven and a half wins, which is even lower. That was the number because I knew there was a number that I saw really? that was like, man, if it's that, and it's, I think it's, it's all about the schedule because the schedule yeah. is brutal. Um, but I also think there's this, I don't know, there's a, just a, a question mark around this program. Well, I actually think the value for that one is on the over, uh, seven and a half wins. Yeah, for sure. I think you, you know, and if it's a, be a massive setback for them, you said something about LSU, um, that I totally agree with. They don't look that much different. Like the no. whole move to get rid of S. Miles would, we're tired of, you know, three yards and a cloud of dust and being conservative and not getting it done. And we want to open things up offensively. Um, the one thing that I have heard about their offense from the spring is that Joe Burrow, I don't think he took hardly any snaps under center, which yeah. would be a very different looker with Joe Brady, the passing game coordinator from the Saints, who's this young, you know, phenom yes. that's supposed to be a Sean McVay at the college <laughs> ranks. All these things you're hearing about yeah. him. I still have to see it 
sure. play out on the field before I buy in as LSU is going to have this high-flying attack. They have to do something different. Right. They put up a big goose egg against Alabama last year. If they do that again, I just wonder again, where does it go with Ed Ogeron? Well, the that's the thing. is There's kind of, of sneaky pressure on Ed Ogeron for that very thing because, you know, he sat, that, sat there here and sold this the entire offseason that, you know, this is going to be the year it changes. And – Really, that's what made them unhappy with Les Miles because it never happened, even though he said the exact same things every single offseason. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, they looked like in the spring game, and you don't take a lot from spring, spring games, but they looked like they were actually going to do that this time. But we've seen that in the past. And, and I do think that there's, there's more to it because can Joe Burrow actually be that guy? I don't know. Right. You know. He was a real good game manager last year, and that's great. And people love following him. And if you talk to him, you're gonna want to you're, you're gonna want to run through a brick wall for him. I, that's all true. But can he actually do it? And can he do it with a running back situation and an offensive line situation that might be a little worse than last year? Because Clyde edwards Elaire's decent, but he's more of a you know home run hitter. You know, get it out and get him out in space. He can't be a bruiser. They're gonna expect a lot from John Emery, one of the true freshman running backs coming in. Can he pass block? Because if you're gonna open things up. You're going to have to pass block more as a running back. Yep. And so I just – it's one thing to sit to sit here and say, okay, they're going to open things up. But even if they do, like right. even if they call those plays, I don't know if they'll actually work based on the personnel they have. Right. I totally hear what you're saying on Joe Burrow. Um, there's an awful lot of trust and confidence that he's going to take that next step based on a quarterback who completed 57% of his passes last year. 16 touchdowns, five interceptions. Those aren't exactly no. like round, you know, earth shattering numbers. <laughs> and some of those like, were hey. in the seven overtime game. Right, right, you know? right, exactly. So that's one that I just kind of, I love him from a leadership. I think he's one of yeah. the toughest quarterbacks. Him and Sam yeah. Ellinger, you know, if there was a toughness award for quarterback, those two guys would get it for me hands down. Their win total set at nine, Oof. um, which I would probably fade that one and go the other way. I would, I would probably take the under I would too. Uh, for them as well. I if, think they probably are a nine win team. Yeah. But but they're more likely an eight win team than a ten win team. Right. Um we can make a lot of picks. And I'll I do it all the time. Like, hey, I'll just make a pick to be different, or maybe it hits and you look really smart. If you had to put a meaningful amount of money on who is playing in the SEC championship game, would you take Georgia, Alabama, or would you think outside the box and maybe put Florida in there or somebody else as opposed to Bama. So if I had to put somebody other than those two, it would be Florida for a couple of reasons. One, the East is what is a meaningful amount. So what are you, are you on board like picking that CC East? Yeah. I mean, represented by Florida. No, I'm picking Georgia. Okay. Uh, but, <laughs> so, but so you wouldn't do yeah. a meaningful. So I, 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 right. But if, but if I got good, a good value on Florida, I wouldn't, here's the thing. If you beat, if, if Florida can beat Georgia in the cocktail party. Okay, you have the head-to-head. Yep. I don't think enough is made of Georgia's schedule, specifically the very end of that schedule, yep. because they go to Auburn, the, you know, in, in mid-November, and then they have Texas A&M, but before the Georgia Tech game. So, you know, usually Georgia has, you know, a cupcake between Auburn and, and Georgia Tech because that's what the SEC does. They have cupcake Saturday for a reason. Yep. But you look after that Florida game. Missouri's tough. I mean, you know, you don't know what you're going to get from Kelly Bryant, but Missouri's tough at Auburn, Texas A&M. That's a really really tough november so if, if how did that happen this isn't the yeah. sec way i know right <laughs> that's you know? not supposed to happen it's, for these guys it's not it's it's not the cupcake saturday that we all it's because notre dame's in there that's the biggest thing <laughs> yeah. um because they also have georgia tech but um you know if they lose to florida 
that's that's a tough little you know three game stretch before the Yellow Jackets. And if you have that tiebreaker, if you're the Gators and you see what what Georgia has down the road, that's a lot of pressure on Kirby Smart's Bulldogs. Kind of not really the pressure they've seen before because even last year when they went to Kentucky and the SEC East was on the line, it was Kentucky. Now I know Kentucky had a ten win season, but I mean let's be real, they they had. Very, very little offense, and Georgia was not scared at all. So, yeah, I mean, if I were to if I were to take value on somebody else other than Georgia or Alabama, I would pick Florida just because I think it's a little bit easier of a, of a path. Um, we look at the SEC, and there's always that conversation, and it's already come up, and it's kind of bothered me. Hey, Bama and Georgia, there could be two teams in there. Um, You're not going to like my say, uh, playoff predictions later oh, you on. De- no, you don't have three on, in, do you? On, on you don't have Sports three in, do you? All right. Four o'clock, shameless plug. There's a, te- uh, there's a tease for it. I do think this is a year where – Especially with Georgia's schedule, sure. the fact that Georgia could be—I think you could have a couple two-loss teams and potentially playing in the SEC championship game against Bama, who's undefeated or one. You know, I'm probably yeah. undefeated. Welcome back to Canel and Bell, hanging out with Barrett Salee, doing some college football. Clemson or Bama? Who is the king of college football? The king. I don't is, think it's a question. It's Clemson. Yeah, I mean, two of the last national championships, and Alabama fans hate to hear this. The dynasty is dormant. It's not dead. But it's dormant because, you know, dynasty to me is like you have to have, you know, power over something, control over something. You have to rule something. Well, Alabama doesn't rule college football right now. Clemson does, but it's it's more like these two superpowers are just, you know, fighting each other and trading power, you know, back and forth every year. So, you know, Clemson, I love the way that Dabo has done this because he does it with staff continuity and he does it with targeted recruiting for guys that he know can, knows can play and can act in a way that fits the program, the personality of the program that he's, you know, developed. So yeah, Clemson is, is the king of college football right now. Um, I love the fact that we're in an era that, you know, it's, you have something like this where you don't have the Warriors or the Yankees or, you know, the Patriots. You have, you know, two legit powers that, you know, on any given year, you don't know which one, you know, which one's going to emerge, but you kind of anticipate that at some point they're going to meet. Do you like that? I like it better. I think the. See, I hate it because I think right, it's but, diluted the regular season. Because you mentioned the no, Warriors. No, but it hasn't. But it hasn't though, because you know Clemson and Alabama games are must-watch games. And then if you see a team like Oklahoma with with you know whether it was Baker Mayfield or, or Kyler Murray, you know start to sort of become that. You, you pay attention to them and start to think if they're that team that can crash the party or Georgia. You know, it's. I know a lot of folks get you know Alabama Clemson fatigue, right? Mm-hmm. But in other sports, it's just Golden State fatigue or it's just New England Patriots fatigue. So I, I don't understand why college football gets criticized for what its landscape is when other pro sports have it much worse than where we stand for college football right now because at least you have a a conversation at the top with Clemson and Alabama and then a separate conversation with everybody else in college football – that that are trying to reach that point. I think that's what makes it interesting. It, I don't. I think it's a feature, not a bug. I would disagree because I think from the NBA standpoint, they had Golden State versus Cleveland, right? When sure. LeBron was in Cleveland, uh, and it was I think it was three years in a row, and you had those teams back and forth. And I thought it diluted the regular season because everybody preseason picks. It's very similar. Oh, it's going to be Alabama, Clemson. Then it was Golden State versus the Cavaliers, right? Then LeBron leaves, opens it up, and then due to some injuries. You get a new a new king, you know. Right. You get a new crown. Uh, as Toronto Raptors took over that. Then now you have an entirely new. Well, landscape, now it's completely different, which is, right? But, and this that's why everybody's different. excited about the NBA sure. this offseason. Man, it's wide open, and I think that's why the NFL is really the best sport in America because every fan base 
probably like 24, 25 of them feel like they have a chance to maybe make a Super Bowl run. And in college football, how many teams really feel like they can knock off Bama or Clemson? I'd probably say it's seven or eight. I would say maybe you go down to 12 that that you can make a case from a personnel standpoint. Okay, yes. if things click, then okay, this is going to work. But you know, I don't I don't think that's that different than the NBA. And I think the the beauty of college football, to me anyway, and you and I disagree with this because we've yelled at each other on the internet a lot about this, is uh, I like college football because it it rewards excellence, not grants access. You know, I, I don't care if you've won a conference. I don't care what you know what you've done within your sort of little geographical bubble because it doesn't make you a great team. And, and so, if you have Georgia and Clemson, and then two other spots available for teams that have to basically be perfect or close to it all year long, that enhances the regular season. Because yes, con- you know, if you if you expanded to eight, you'd have automatic bids for the Power Five. And so, conference title races would be interesting, but that's it. Beyond that, there wouldn't be that much intrigue because, you know, you might sit here and say, okay, Alabama and Clemson are still going to be there and you have a chance for a Cinderella, but really, like you said, we're not going to have a Cinderella in this sport, nor should we because I want to reward the best team throughout the course of the season. So I love the fact in, in, in our sport that the, the, the definition of excellence and the definition of being a champion shifts based on the landscape. You know, you, you don't have to sit here and say, okay, you win the NL East, which the Braves will do. Um, yeah, I firmly believe that, not as a brave homer or anything. Um, but you know, you don't have to win a sort of geographical footprint to become excellent. The definition, because of the committee, will shift based on the silver platter that is delivered to them in that committee room. And and so, oh, but their criteria is just vague enough, or they can right. explain away anybody right, they want to. Right. Well, no, no doubt. I mean, I, I think that. The criteria that they sort of try to try to sell is is a little much. They should just say we're going to pick the four best teams, and we don't care how. It's Which developed. is what they've done. Which is what they've done. But would just you say matter that. if they made? Because I w- I would go to eight teams. I think it enhances all of November for a lot more teams. Like if it gets whittled down to eight teams that we in November that we think can make the playoff, that would probably go to sixteen or twenty of anybody who's in a conference championship race. Would you be okay if we didn't go to that? Okay. If we just made one. Tweak to one criteria. Okay. You have to win your conference. No. Four best conference not. champs. Why Absolutely not? Absolutely not. You don't think you can find four worthy conference champions? No, because what if you have an upset in, the, in, a, in a conference championship game by a team that's that's useless? What if what if Pitt beats Clemson last year? And Clemson wasn't as good as we thought they were. Does Pitt deserve a national championship? A chance for it. Why not? They were 6-6 six and six in the regular season. <laughs> that would never happen, by the way. Okay, well, but if it would, me, okay. I would be okay with okay, it. Like, well, we've seen 9-7 teams with, with, make a run. Wisconsin was 7-5 so. in 2012. Correct. You're, and... and I would be okay with it personally. Well, but then the, but then the regular season is diminished because those seven wins and those five losses don't matter. Pitt's six wins and six losses if they had upset Clemson don't matter. Missouri in 2014. Well, or Wisconsin still would have had to win their division, so the division race would have still been entertaining. And maybe if it's even closer. Oh, that division maybe race was not entertaining. No, but maybe it was for teams like Iowa, Northwestern, other teams. Like, they would have felt, man, we might be really bad this year. But we still have a chance to win our division and maybe pull off an upset. But and that's get to the, the playoff. but that's the problem. That's the that's that would be a problem because the regular season would not matter. Oh, it would be. I totally disagree. It would make the regular season better. So, so Clemson, all those teams so, that are average on. would have a better chance. Right, but that's not the point. You're granting access at that point. I don't. I don't. If if Pitt loses six games but beats Clemson in the ACC championship game and they don't make the playoff, tough. Don't lose six games. You know, <laughs> right. win your games. If Clemson goes 12-0 and and then suffers an upset, yeah, that's going to be a problem. And Clemson, had they lost that game last year, probably would not have been in, in the college football playoff. But, right. But if, Which if, I would have totally been okay with that. Based on what, how everything else played out, probably, yeah. yeah. Um, but if, if, 
you sit there and, and have Clemson have 12 wins in a regular season and then play a 13th game, play into a spot where you get a bonus game and lose, then those 12 wins are meaningless. And so I think the beauty of this, and, and this is sort of a larger view of, of how I view the sport, every single week you have all this drama. You have you know Auburn beating Washington last year. At the time, it was like that's a huge deal. You know, nine over six, you know, Auburn's going to, you know, be great and, and Washington played their tails off and they're going to have a chance to win the Pac-12 and maybe get to the playoff. And then at the end of the, of the season, it didn't mean all that much. But at the time, it did. And, and because of the fact that you have that uncertainty throughout the course of the season, you have more important games. You have games that matter on a national scale, even if in retrospect, they don't. And, and because of that, you have that draw, you have that passion, you have that disappointment that, you know, if, if you lose a game, Georgia to LSU, perfect example. They got smoked by LSU. I live in Georgia. I know a ton of Georgia fans. The world was ending. The, the team just fire Kirby Smart. Everybody should be, should be moved out of that office. They still had a chance to make the playoff. At the end of the Which day. is wrong. Thankfully, they didn't get that. Would have been a massive mistake. Look, I, I'm 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 an SEC guy. I would not have put Georgia in the playoffs. Right. I don't I, think that is hard to beat. Yeah. Ohio State was the team. Now, I had they beat know. LSU and then lost to Alabama and and finished oh, see, I hate that. You can't you can't lose your way into a playoff. Like what's now you should Alabama lost its way in the playoff too, and that's a major problem I had, which is why well, there was nobody there was me. nobody else to take that <laughs> exactly. spot. Exactly. Um, I think the ACC is the worst Power Five conference. Worse than the Pac-12. From a depth standpoint, the, if if the Pac-12 had anybody as a standard bearer who could, you know, if Oregon stepped up, let's say they beat or, uh, Auburn, and they were a one loss or even undefeated Pac-12 champ, I don't even think it'd be even a close discussion. But I think the Pac-12 is actually deeper than we think, and they've been the punching bag of because they missed the playoffs. But I mean, if you didn't have Clemson exist, imagine how bad the ACC would be. I'm with you on that potentially being the case this year. Right. I think last year, um, the ACC, I, Syracuse was really good last yes, year. They were great. a really good football team and the Pac-12 was, was not. I mean, when Zach Moss got hurt for Utah, I mean, that was, that was it. It was over. The, I'm with you on the Pac-12 this year. I, I think Utah's going to be legit as long as they stay healthy. Uh, that's the best defensive line in the Pac-12 and maybe the country. I mean, they are, man, the country, top five country. Yep. Um, I like Oregon. I love the way they can play offensively. I love the fact that they get five guys back on the offensive line. Chris Peterson's t- a team is always tough. And I think everybody just assumes that Clay Helton is trash and USC is not going to do anything and JT Daniels can't play. The dude was a true freshman quarterback last year and he was reclassified up a year in high school. So he should have been a senior in high school last year. And Clay Helton did lead that team to two straight New Year's Six Bowl games. And so I'm with you. I think the Pac-12 will be better this year. And a lot of it depends on your boys at, 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 at with with Florida State. If yep. Florida State doesn't improve, then the ACC is going to be in trouble. Yeah, totally agree. Ton of stuff. College football just around the corner. How many days away? Don't ask Florida State's social media. <laughs> we have no <laughs> we idea. Have no idea. <laughs>